There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the Titans of Food Service podcast. This is your host here, Nick Portillo. Today, I welcome the Senior Vice President of National Account Sales for Tractor Beverage, Karima Goodwin. We dive deep into Karima's journey in the food service industry. We learn some tips and tricks along the way about how to be successful selling into national accounts, national accounts being large, very large, thousands of units, restaurant chains, and so, so much more. So please, if you enjoy this episode and have enjoyed the podcast, if you could leave a five-star review, whether you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcast, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts, if you can leave a five-star review, that would truly mean a lot. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Karima, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I'm so excited to have you on here today. Thank you for taking time out of your day to meet with me. I've been looking forward to our conversation and just want to say welcome. Well, thank you, Nick. I've been looking forward to it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for bringing me to the show. Uh, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts, so I, I was very impressed. So very impressed with what you're doing. So happy that you're bringing more visibility into like just food service and like everyone's starting career. Food service is an old industry. So, and a lot of us have been around for a long time. So very happy that you're kind of bringing it up to the forefront. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, I when I got into the food service industry, my dad and I, we started a food service brokerage company back in 2015. Yeah, what he said when when we got into the when I got into the, into the industry, he's like, "There's no books that you can read to be successful in this industry. It's one of those ones you just got to get out there and do it." And so now, eight years later, I'm like, or I actually started the last year. Seven years later, I'm like, "This is going to be my version of a book." And I want other people to come on, okay. share their experiences, and you know, things that they've learned along the way. And at this point, I've I think I've probably we've done an episode every week for probably seven months now and every single conversation i've had i learned some at least one new thing which has been really really cool wow that is all that's that's awesome so because now you've got like a real live documentary of folks (laughs) that you can pull together (laughs) and make like a movie like that's awesome that's right that's right thank you so why don't we start off with the very basics going back to when you got into the food service industry where did you begin all right so i i began at mcdonald's on 87th and the dan ryan in chicago at 15. so back when your parents could let you work at 15 so i was 15 working at mcdonald's my very first job well not my first job so i would say it was my third job but my very first like real job and I loved it. So from like frontline to drive through to being a crew captain, I loved it to the point that, and I was commuting, like I was commuting from the far south suburbs of Chicago to the city. And I mean, I'm talking about like an hour and a half, like bus commute at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I would work birthday parties on Saturday afternoons. And then I would go into the grill and learn how to like flip burgers in the grill at night. So I would work like 10 and 12 hour shifts as like a 15 and a 16 year old. Um, but I became a crew captain at the same time. Uh, I would work like after school at a different restaurant, like at Fats Fast Food. I don't know if you remember Fats. It was like, I'm dating myself. It was almost 30 years ago. But at night, I was working at Fats Fast Food, weekends working at McDonald's, and then eventually started working at two McDonald's at the exact same time. So I just had this love of like just being in front of the customers and making friends and seeing all the regulars. And it was it was kind of my shtick. So I wanted to own a McDonald's. So going into college, so I stopped working at McDonald's as I went into college. So I was there for about three years. So three years at two different locations. But going into college, when I was um, started as an accounting major, became a marketing management major. But in marketing, we would have to do like presentations on what you wanted your future to look like, like what you wanted to do. Uh, and I said, well, I want to own a McDonald's. Like that was my thing. I wanted to own a McDonald's. And back then it was like just so far out. I'm like, how do you ever own a McDonald's? And you're like 18, 19 years old and you're thinking about it. I would put together whole business plans 
on how I would raise the capital and everything. But and I never got to owning a McDonald's. I've worked with, with McDonald's on multiple occasions now as a customer, but never got to that point. But that was like my introduction into food service. And while I was in college, so it was my senior year. I don't know. Do you know Wendy Arnold from the Ryan Group? So the Ryan Group Food Service Marketing Agency in Chicago paired with IBI Data. I was in my senior year. I was interviewing for jobs. So it was like, okay, Karima, you need an internship. You need to figure it out. So it was like junior year going into senior year. Wendy was looking for an MBA student to help her at the Ryan Group and to help her with analyzing promos and working with her different clients. And I said, well, you know what? I'm not an MBA student, but I'm going to interview anyway. So got the job with the Ryan Group as a a business analyst. So that was my internship as a business analyst. And it was a small company back then, uh, maybe nine account managers plus a fulfillment team. And my first job in college, and I had no idea what food service was. No idea. But I was the person who was creating like the consumer business reply cards for Kellogg's. If Quaker Oats ran a food service promotion and gave out like gift cards, I was the person writing the letters. If Sara Lee did like a direct mail or a sample mailer, I was the person who was analyzing the promotion and then putting together like the PowerPoint presentation summary. Um, Wendy sent me to ExecuTrain, so I got trained in Excel and PowerPoint and Access. So I was the person who would like build the pivot tables and analyze all the data. So that's what I was doing in college. That was my first introduction into food service. Uh, And then once I graduated a year later, Wendy said, well, I've been reaching out to folks. Nobody has an entry level job available. So you're going to have to find a job. And I got an email from the American Marketing Association and it said Kellogg's was looking for food service interns. I said, nobody knows what food service is. Like there's no (laughs) college students. No college student would know what food service was as an industry unless you came from food service. So sent over my resume, sent samples of all the work I had done with the Ryan Group, with Kellogg's as a customer, uh, sent that over to Mary Kay McMahon at Kellogg's Food Service in Elmhurst. Uh, it was right after Kellogg's bought Keebler. So that was 2001. So that put that puts a timestamp on me now. <laughs> so <laughs> it was right when Kellogg's bought Keebler, sent over my resume, went in for an interview, and that was it. So I went in. I wanted to become a marketing intern. The marketing internship was already taken. I got a sales strategy internship instead. So I started working for Scott Rogers in sales strategy. My office was a broom closet. So I tease him to this day that he gave me a broom closet as an office, a broom <laughs> closet that I shared. Like, seriously, it was like a five oh by five gosh. broom closet that I shared with Tony Hubbard, who's still at Kellogg's today. Uh, Tony's still one of my very, very dear friends. We shared an office. We had lots of great conversations, um, but I learned a lot. So during that time, like my job in sales strategy as an internship was analyzing K through 12 bids. I was calling school districts 20 years ago as a concerned parent to find out what cereal they were going to bring in, analyzing Uh, bids across the industry, working on broker deals, like to understand like the brokers in the different markets and how each of them were performing. Um, I worked on financial analysis for the team, a lot with pivot tables in Excel, because I think like back then utilizing the data was still very new in food service. So I was really good at utilizing the data coming from the Ryan group and managing all of like the performance metrics for the promotions. So did that. And about six months later, was it six months? Uh, Yeah, maybe five or six months later, um, I got called into the office and they're like, well, Karima, uh, we don't have an internship available for you, but we want you to go out into sales. And I'm like, sales? Like, I can't go into sales. Like, I'm a marketer. Like, I've done (laughs) commercials with Leo Burnett. I've done, like, marketing projects. Like, I want to be in marketing. So I was basically told there's no marketing jobs available at Kellogg's. Those are highly sought-after jobs. If you get a job, it's going to be an entry-level administrative role. You'll never be able to get out of that role and progress. Try out sales. So I said, I just don't have the personality. I don't know if this is going to be a good fit. Um, then Scott said, well, I'm going to send you out with a bunch of different folks so that you can see how different salespeople act, like act in the field, interact with customers, engage. So went out with Mike Strauss, still really good friends. So he was on the military side and we would, I went to Norfolk, Virginia, and I saw like the directness. It was so direct. It was so like to the point, it was very like business savvy. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I can't do that. Um, he's, he's up at like six in the morning on a military base, like taking racks and equipment, like out to a military base to like sample our products. 
then I flew over to New Orleans and I was with a gentleman, Joel, and we were talking to hospitals for two hours about like their grandbabies and about their kids and about their families. So he was very relationship-based. And then I went up to Arizona with a young lady, Danielle Kane. She was awesome. And she was like a badass. Like she would go and like, if we have to go to the back of a restaurant, she would like get out of her car, move the caution sign that tells you don't drive back here. And like, we're going in through the alley, through the back door, by the dumpsters. She's like, look, you got to get it done however you can get it done. So I was able to see so many different personality traits and so many different styles of working. And Scott says, so what do you think? I said, Scott, I still can't do this. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, Karima, he said, think about it like this. He said, you are going to be a consultative salesperson. He said, you will be the most analytical salesperson that we've got on the team. This is something that you absolutely have to do. You know the marketing side. You've worked in corporate. You've done your stint. He said, go out and just try it. And so then the VP of sales is like, and Karima, you can golf on Thursdays and you can like do your laundry in the middle of the day and take your clothes to the dry cleaners. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't golf. Like, I don't golf. I can't afford to put, <laughs> put clothes in the dry cleaners. Like, I'm a I'm a, a young girl from the south side of Chicago. Like, this is so far away from anything that I know. But I did it. I did it because there were no marketing jobs available. So I went ahead. I took my, my, took my stab at food service sales. So, Nick, do you want, I've got a seven minute like elevator speech of from that point forward. Do you want the seven, the seven minutes that sometimes turns into 13 minutes? Bring it on. All right. Let me get comfortable. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got to get comfortable. So, because it was, it was like, it was hard and fast. So, that's what I would say. I would say that my career has been really hard, really fast. So, went into sales. I'm early on. I'm on the South Side. I'm doing everything that nobody else wanted to do. So I would get folks, they would just give me accounts that they didn't want to go to. And you got to think back then, and I'm going to be completely real with you. I was the only black woman in food service sales at this major CPG company. So I would go places that everyone else wasn't comfortable with going. I would go to the school districts in the poor neighborhoods and we would have extra premiums and I'm going to take the premiums and toys and all of the the tchotchkes to these school districts that nobody else would go to because everyone would say that these were bad areas, these were low-income areas, these were areas where they didn't feel comfortable or didn't feel safe. So, but that's where I grew up. So it wasn't, I mean, honestly, like some of my best accounts were right around the corner from my house and no one would even venture into these markets. So started out like just really hitting all of the individual operator accounts that no one wanted to go see. After about a year, year and a half of building my own promotions, because remember, I came from the Ryan group, so I had, I had the marketing background. I would build my own promotions and have them individualized for those specific customers. So I did that for a year, year and a half, and then started managing distribution uh, because I guess I guess we did a good job uh, with the operator accounts. Went on to manage, I don't know if you remember like Clark Food Service back in the day. Clark Food Service yeah. has closed down since. Um, but I had Central Illinois, Northwest Indiana, uh, managing distribution. So I had U.S. Foods, Tom's Pressler Company, Clark Food Service, Stan's Food Service. So everything up and down that drag. So it was a lot of driving. I got a lot of tickets. I'm not going to lie. A lot of tickets. <laughs> um, any tickets. any salesperson you talk to, they're going to say they got a lot of tickets. <laughs> so manage, yeah, manage distribution for a couple of years. And then Kellogg started a new role. And it was right after PepsiCo had a K-12 operator role. It was really, really early for operator-specific roles. But Pepsi had one, so Kellogg started it. Uh, and they said, Karima, you're going to be in a fishbowl, but we want you to manage the operators in Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Chicago. So did that successfully for maybe, again, like two years. So hard and fast. Like I never turned down any opportunity. I took every single opportunity that came to me. So managed those K through 12 accounts, built a ton of promotions. I'm driving to Iowa, driving to Wisconsin. I'm training brokers in Minnesota on how to sell K through 12 and how to sell Kellogg's. I'm driving to Fargo, North Dakota from Chicago. So lots of windshield time, but making lots of sales. It was very fun. I love K through 12. I'm going to say I probably spent a good, in total in my career, a good five, six years just focusing on K-12 business. And a lot of the school food service directors are still my friends today. After that, I got asked to go into sales strategy. 
And I knew that it would be difficult because now I've been working from home. I've bought my first place. So as soon as I started in sales, I got my first condo. Now I've moved twice. I've got a house. I'm living an hour and a half away from the corporate office. And they're like, Karima, will you commute in? And they give me an offer. And I said, you're going to give me this low offer and I'm going to have to lose my company car. I've got to commute an hour and a half every single day. I said, this is going to be some work. I'm going to have to sit in corporate meetings all day long because, you know, it's just not what salespeople do. And you're in this. You grew up in the sales life at this point. But I did it after two attempts. So they came back to me twice. I turned down the first one. The second time I went in. It was hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, but it was the best thing that I've ever done for my career. So I was able to, and I led national accounts for sales strategy. So in addition to consulting the K through 12 managers, I would also lead national accounts. So I've got anyone who manages the big three, uh, Burger King, Subway, all of the big national account customers for Kellogg's, I managed those accounts with them. Um, I would build out some of the the data tools. So we would just take our Compass data, take our Sodexo data, and we would actually build out promos for the rest of the field sales team so that they can go out and activate against those specific customers where we have partnerships or agreements with. So did that for a couple of years and then later started to actually manage the CRM team at Kellogg's. So because it was also data driven. So most of what I did was really data driven. And maybe that was because I was super comfortable with the data just coming from my background. So did that for two to three years, but I was like scratching at the walls. So I needed to get out. (laughs) So can you imagine? It's like um, keeping a salesperson like stuck in an office is like having me in this little, little tiny box. And every single day, the box was getting smaller and smaller. Loved it. Loved the experience. Learned a lot. Learned a lot about like just corporate dynamics, um, interviewing skills and basics. Like I started managing my own team. So it was the first time that I had ever managed people. So lots of skills that I gained, but it was very difficult. So anybody will tell you, like working in sales strategy is like shit rolls downhill. Everything comes down on you. So you got to figure it out. Yep. Um, so after after a couple of years in sales strategy, there was an opportunity to have like this higher level K through 12 role. There were only five in the country. One was in Chicago. One was in Atlanta. Those were the only two left. Interview for Chicago. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it. I was heartbroken. These were customers that I knew already. This was a market that I knew already. I never thought I would leave Chicago. But you know what? I needed to leave sales strategy. <laughs> so <laughs> my husband said, well, Karima, if you want the job in Atlanta, we can move to Atlanta. You can take the job in Atlanta. It was like a level five. So national account manager equivalent, but managing all K through 12 strategy. So okay. went to Atlanta, loved it. Beautiful in the South. I mean, I've never seen more hardworking people than my team in the Southeast. It was incredible. Made a big splash. So met a lot of incredible customers. I got a golden K that year for Kellogg's sales success. And a lot of folks said like, man, Karima, you killed it only because you were upset that Kellogg's made you move to Atlanta. And that may have been what it was. Like internally, it might have been, I have to prove myself because you didn't think that I could do the Chicago job. So I had to prove myself in Atlanta. Uh, So did that, but I had the entire Southeast. So building strategy for that entire team. But then in Atlanta, it was difficult. You're married. You've got a husband from Chicago with a business. It just didn't work out. So now I'm in Atlanta and I'm going through a divorce. So there, but there was an opportunity at the exact same time to go to Florida. So they said, Karima, we've got a region manager role. Do you want to apply for it? You'll have the entire Southeast, which was the biggest region in the country for Kellogg's at the time. We also had international export and a lot of the contract negotiation, uh, including like cruise lines, which is a different dynamic than what you would typically see. And you've got a lot of exporters. You don't get that in other parts of the country, but you really get a ton of that in the Southeast part of the country. So I said, you know what? I like the Florida customers and I like everyone in the Southeast. I don't mind. So I could have stayed in Atlanta, but I decided to move to Florida just because I wanted to change, wanted something different. So get to Florida, leading the southeast part of the country for Kellogg's. My team got a golden K while I was there. It was great. I got to meet folks internationally. I met international brokers. I made a lot of partnerships and we managed a lot of contracts. But then I started to get lonely. And I said, you know what? I said, I want to go back to Chicago, Kellogg's. Can I get back to Chicago? And I gave Kellogg's six months and they never came. They said, you know what, Karima, we still can't find anything. We'll put you back in sales strategy. I said, you know, I don't want to go back in sales strategy. So it looks like I have to go elsewhere. So moved back to Chicago with a different company, Tate and Lyle. That was a company, an ingredient based company, the company that makes Splenda, if you don't know who Tate and Lyle is. 
But at yeah. Tate and Lyle, it was my first director role. I got an, ep- an opportunity to manage Cisco and U.S. Foods. I got to manage Darden restaurants. I, I had a relationship with uh, CSSI, which is Culinary Sales Support Inc. I managed legal documents. So you got to think about it. At a Kellogg's, you've got so many people. Our food service team was 200 people. So you've got one job. Like you manage Cisco or you manage Dot, or you manage U.S. food. Like, you have one job. Going to a company like Tate & Lyle, where there wasn't a big food service team, you were able to do everything. So, I mean, it was cool. Like, Robert Irvine would come in, and we would make granola bars for Robert Irvine, or we're making shrimp and grits for Bo Jackson. I had this incredible chef uh, who was a really great salesman who I later took to Kellogg's. But (laughs) it was a cool experience because I got to do everything. They were super nimble. You could just get into restaurants really quickly. You could get samples out fast. I did that for about a year and then Kellogg's came back knocking at the door and it was like all right I had the choice now I'm back in Chicago and I know ingredients I know ingredients I know commercial restaurant chains and I know Kellogg's so I got the opportunity to go back and work for my mentor Mark Stephanie in Kellogg's on the ingredients team managing commercial chains so really it's like the you stay with the evil you don't know or you go back to the evil that you know. You just go back to your family. And that's what I did. So went back to Kellogg's once I was back in Chicago. It was about a year later uh, and led the commercial restaurant team for Kellogg's. Very, very cool opportunity. Brought over my chef from Tate and Lyle. He did an incredible job, but I had a job, a, a team of great national account managers. I had a great partner who was our senior manager of sales who did the custom ingredients work. And we were really trying to activate against commercial chains. So at the time, we had Burger King, Subway, during a time where the industry was a little bit rocky because you had the first bout with Avion flu. So Mm. we're pricing customers on a weekly basis because egg prices are changing. But it was a time when customers wanted to do something different. So if you saw the Burger King Fruit Loop Shake, that was a project that we actually initiated Mm. with Burger King three years prior to launching. You had customers asking for Fruit Loop donuts and Fruit Loop Cinnabon Delights. And there were just so many different opportunities with that team. But you know what? Kellogg's, we're very, we were we were a very conservative company. So unfortunately, we couldn't do a ton of those cool concepts back then. But as time progressed, so after I was gone, long gone, and the team long gone, they have like done tons of really cool innovation for mm-hmm. partners like that. Um, I wish I would have been an opera had an opportunity to be a part of it, but unfortunately I wasn't. So now after you've been after you've been somewhere for 15 years and you had an opportunity to kind of get out and see what the rest of the world looks like, now you're curious. So at this point, I'm curious, I'm ready to to spread my wings. I, it's almost like I was in a box and I was taken out when I went to Tate and Lyle. So I wanted to do something different. So I had an opportunity to either go to Intelligentsia Coffee in Chicago uh, and lead their sales team or Chudley's in Canada. And I chose Chudley's in Canada because I wanted to be able to travel back and forth to Canada. And I thought that it would be a really cool opportunity, which it was. So Chudley's is a company based in Milton, Ontario. So small bakery company uh, known for all natural products, no preservatives, no artificial ingredients, but makes really, really great desserts. So you can see some of the U.S. foods, private label line. So their chef's line desserts, the rustic tarts, some of the desserts in the Darden restaurant. So maybe the apple tart or the apple crostata at Olive Garden. Wow. You see it in all retail shelves, like every retail grocery store under private label, the molten lava cakes, the apple blossoms, Trader Joe's, sticky toffee pudding cakes, like just really, really sexy desserts. And everything was so good. So worked up in Canada for about two years leading food service for the entire North America. So for Canada and for the U.S. So up in Canada, I had a team of Waypoint brokers in the U.S., had a regional account manager, national account manager, who was also a chef. But then also we had the affinity brokers in the U.S. So we had 18 affinity broker teams. That was cool. So did it for two years. And at that, but at that point, you could tell that things were changing. We had a CEO, a COO that was my boss, and she ended up being let go and she lost her job. At that point, I realized like things are changing. So maybe I need to make my way back to the States. I was living in the States, but just traveling up to Canada like one week a month or so and had a great opportunity at Dairy Gold, which was dairy company based in the PNW in Seattle. Notice I'm farther and farther away from Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> Seattle is so much further. Toronto was closer than Seattle. But I've always said I never want to work for a company that's based in Chicago again because I'll never work in a corporate office again. 
Yeah. So went to Seattle. I'm working at Dairy, at Dairy Gold and started with leading all national chains. So I managed the team that had McDonald's, Starbucks, Compass, Sodexo. But then I personally managed the relationships with, um, with Dot, Cisco, U.S. Foods. Um, and very similar to at Chudley's. So at Chudley's, I managed Dot, Cisco, U.S. Foods, in addition to like U.S., Compass, um, Sodexo. So very, very comfortable in that space. So that was more on the non-com side. And then also with the commercial chains. So did that for a year at Dairy Gold and was promoted to VP of sales at Dairy Gold, leading the entire food service team. Great team of people. Loved them. I was with Dairy Gold for four years. Then I get a call from Scott Rogers, who was my very first boss at Kellogg's, asking about Tractor Beverage. And I say, you know, Scott, I'm not interested. I'm in a really, really good place. Um, love Dairy Gold, love the team, love the people. But then Scott just kept wearing me down, wearing me down. <laughs> yeah. And then after I had an opportunity to talk to the Tractor CEO, Kevin Sherman, who really talked to me about his goal of democratizing organic, making organic available to all, that was super important to me. So when we were talking about just the inequities in some communities, that was important to me because it touched close to home because my mother still lives on the South side. So I still go and take groceries to my mom every other week, uh, if not every week. Like I'm taking groceries, I'm taking food because she does live in a food desert. She doesn't drive. It's a mile away to the closest store that's going to have like stale bread and stale tortillas and it's going to have meat that's green. So it is, she does still live in that area and she doesn't, she's not able to get good, clean food and good, clean resources right in her own community. So it was really important to me when Tractor mentioned that. So throughout my career, I've always been a part of an employee resource group because I've always felt like I've got to speak up for anyone who doesn't have a voice. So, but today I'm on the board with Julie Swift for Food Service Women's yeah. Association. At Dairy Gold, I led People of Color plus Allies Resource Group. At Kellogg's, I led Professional Development for Kellogg African American Resource Group, but was also a member of Women of Kellogg. So it's always been really important to me to be with a company that has missions, like missions and then also trying to give back. So when I heard from Kevin and Kevin talked about democratizing organic and making sure that everyone gets fair treatment and everyone is able to get tractor beverage across the country, that was super important to me. So I said, you know what? You sold me. So now we're like three, four months into the the courting process. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to tractor. So if we started talking in December, I was there by, let's call it mid-April of last year. And it's been quite a journey. So look, I'm sorry, like my seven minute elevators, it went to the 13, 15 minutes, Um, but came over to Tractor. It's been a year. I lead our uh, commercial team. So I love my team. I was able to build an incredible, incredible group of people. Uh, So I've got a couple of folks who came over with me from Kellogg's. I've got folks who I've known from the industry, from Kraft, who have 20 plus years of experience. I brought one person over from Dairy Gold. So it's just been quite a journey. And we had an incredible group of professionals that were already here at Tractor, like people who are super passionate about the brand, about the business, about doing what's right for the planet. So, I mean, it's been a really, really great year. So I'm right at like a year and two months right now. And I would not have changed anything. I wouldn't have done anything different. So I love that I'm here. So no, Nick, that is incredible. I hope I didn't give you too much. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. I, I've got a lot of questions for sure. Okay. Um, you've had an incredible journey through food service. And I mean, what a journey starting from McDonald's all the way to where you're at currently. I mean, what was it like when you became the vice president of sales for Dairy Gold? What were some of the, the feelings and emotions around that when you first started out? You know, I would have never thought in a million years that I would be here. So I can remember at the Ryan Group as an intern, I remember talking to Wendy and there was like a personality assessment. And in the personality assessment, it said, um, and the person had to know you, like you're giving the test to someone else to tell you what they think about you. And I said, well, Wendy, which which would I be? Do you think that I would rather be an entrepreneur making $50,000 a year for the rest of my life? Or would I be like an executive 
making $100,000 a year working for someone else and leading a company and leading a business. And Wendy said, Karima, you're going to be an executive and you're going to be leading a company and leading a business. And I said, no, Wendy, I said, I want to be an entrepreneur. I'll, I'll make less money because the money is so much less important to me. And it's more about how I feel about the people that I'm with and what I'm doing. So just fast forward 20 years later, I'm like, oh my goodness. I said, I am doing what Wendy said that I would be doing. And I am not the entrepreneur that I thought I would be, which I, I, you know what, I still, everybody has a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit in them. That's what helps you manage your day-to-day business. Um, But I really am like leading a business. I said, this is pretty cool. Honestly, I just would have never expected it. Would have never expected it, never thought it, never felt that I would be worthy enough. And I know, and that is, and a lot of women feel that way. Like we don't feel like we will be worthy worthy enough. We don't feel like we're experienced enough. We don't feel like we're knowledgeable enough to get to that point in an organization. So I always thought like throughout the trajectory of my career, I'm like, okay, I'm going to hit director level because I don't want to work in a corporate office. I'm not going to go beyond director level anywhere. So I'm going to hit director level and my career is going to stop. And then either I'm going to be stagnant or I'm going to go in reverse and take lower level roles just so that I can stay local and stay at home and not have to go into a corporate office. So I just never thought in a million years that that would have been my trajectory. So I would have never thought that I would be here today. So it is very humbling. It's very humbling. And I am I'm in love with the space that I'm in today. And I love food service. Um, I listened to one of your podcasts and someone said that it's almost, it's not like work. It's just doing what you do every day because you love it. So I would definitely say that it's not like work anymore. It is just doing what I love every single day. Yeah. So, so I would say I feel the same way today as I felt when I got that job at Dairy Gold. I feel like I can't believe I can't even believe that I'm here because I'm still so humbled that I even had this opportunity and that somebody even saw value in me. So very appreciative. I'm curious what in the future for the, the future of the food service industry, what changes would you like to see in our industry as a whole? You know what? I think as I've gotten older and as I've just met so many different people, one of the most important characteristics that I would love to see in food service is that we hire and promote good human beings. I think that that has it's been it's made a difference in my life over the last several years. I know that Food service was very transactional. If you think about 20 years ago, that was like the inception of like marketing programs getting started with distributors. That was the inception of like more category management. So you needed really stern, tough sourcing folks. You needed really stern, tough supply chain individuals. Like it was more about being a bulldog and being able to manage the business of it than about like just caring about the folks that you work with and caring about your customers, like genuinely caring about your customers and trying to do the right Mm -hmm. thing. So for the future of food service, I would just love to see people being promoted and hired just for being good humans and just for being good people, having the same moral compass. So I think that that makes a huge difference. So that is that is the difference that I've seen in recent years. And maybe it's because now I mean, of course, after you've been through so many ups and downs, like you've been through life changes, you've been through divorces and remarriages and You've been through it, like all the personal stuff that you deal with. It really makes you appreciate all the good parts of people. So I would just love to see more of that. Totally. And I'm, I'm curious to know more about the employee resource groups that you're talking about. Starting out structurally, how, do, how are those set up within a company? How do those get started? And what are some of, what's some of the change that they can uh, affect within a company? All right. So typically employee resource groups are led by employees. So, of course, HR has to support it. So you're going to have HR who will be the backbone of the group. HR will provide the budget 
the budget for the group. Um, but typically the employees really run it. Like the employees take leads. So if you have someone who is an expert at professional development or an expert at mentoring or networking, people will typically latch on to specific pillars. So you latch on to a pillar and it really is about just driving excitement about that particular employee resource group and just giving the resources are available to the entire organization, but you're going to focus on a specific group. So you might have a veterans group. You may have a working mothers group. You may have a people of color group. You've got a pride group. So you're typically latching on to small groups within the organization that are also looking for a place to fit in. So you're looking for a place to fit in. Uh, You're looking for mentorship. You're looking for nurturing. You're looking for community. So typically an an employee resource group is a type of a community. So it's a community of like-minded people or they have some similarities. Whatever that similarity is that brings them together, now you're able to get this group of folks who are like-minded or similar in a different way and then they can support the rest of the organization by making content available to the entire company by making network networking available to the entire company mentoring available to the entire company uh, we had a group called the great place to work committee at kellogg's where it was a group of folks who everyone just wanted to come together for the betterment of the organization. So we would do things like we were we would manage the employee surveys. So the Gallup surveys, the Great Place to Work surveys, the how does everyone feel about the organization surveys. So we would manage those. We would manage any outreach programs or we would have the employees come together for donations for the Northern Illinois Food Bank. So, but it's for the betterment of the company, but it's just a bunch of like-minded individuals or individuals that are similar and have similar that are coming together and executing. So sure. it is, it's always good to be able to have some sort of passion, something else that connects you to the company. Because when you've got that, now you've got that true feeling of community and you've got that true relationship with the organization because you feel more vested in the company. It's not just a job, like you're going to a family. And you don't hear people say that a lot these days, but it, it truly can be a family in the place in the place that you work. Um, I know there are so many cultures that still have that, but it's, it's a really great feeling because you feel like you're doing something good for the rest of the organization. Yeah, totally. What about for companies that don't currently have an employee resource uh, group or groups? What's kind of a starting point to get that going? Uh, I would say if you've got really motivated individuals within an organization, I'm sure because most smaller companies may not. Smaller companies typically don't have an employee resource group. Larger companies, if you're like a Fortune 100, Fortune 500 company, you've got employee resource groups. So at that small company, you've typically got a few anchor folks who have come from the big guys. Like they've came from, they've come from a Mm -hmm. big brand. So you understand the process or you at least understand the path to finding an employee resource group, but you would need a charter. So you just build a charter, which is really like a few pages of a business plan to start your employee resource group. It's basically your mission, your vision, who will be included, who, what goals do you want to reach? Like, is there a specific business goal that you're trying to hit? Is there a people goal that you're trying to hit? Are you looking to recruit? If you're looking to recruit, who are you looking to recruit? What are your, what's your target demographic? So you're going to build that charter. HR would absolutely have to support it because you'll need a budget. So if you're talking about bringing people together, and even if it's just a kickoff event to say, hey, let's have this kickoff event for, I don't know, I can have an employee resource group for for parents, so men and women with teenage kids, teenage <laughs> kids who want to spend all your money on their cell phones and video games. I mean, that really <laughs> truly could be an employee resource group. Yeah. It is whatever you turn your employee resource group into. Um, but you're going to have the, have a kickoff event. So HR needs to support it with a small budget and you're going to need senior leadership buy-in. So if your senior leaders don't believe in the mission or the mm-hmm. vision, then it's not going to be successful because the employees can only do so much, but your leaders will have to support the employees because you are putting in time. So that could be time while you're on the clock. 
that could be time after work, but you're putting in time that the organization would typically have you being productive, whether your job is finance and you could be looking at a spreadsheet or if your job is sales and you could be returning emails, you're still putting in time. So that's why you need those senior leaders to be able to support and to say, yes, I agree with my team being able to put this time and energy toward this employee resource group. So I'm going to say buy-in from senior leaders. You'll need people who are experienced in building employee resource groups to be able to build a charter because otherwise you won't be able to get it started. And you'll need HR as the backbone. So HR is the backbone and support. HR is not going to initiate it. HR is not going to own it because it's owned by employees. Uh, but you do need that support from HR. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I could imagine those, you know, in terms of just overall employee employment experience, uh, that they're very beneficial for companies. And I think you're right. Smaller companies like like my own, we have 25 employees and never really thought of something like that. But I really like that concept. Yeah. So you've got because people need that community. So you might have a yeah. working mother's employee resource group for working mothers where they come together and they talk about their experiences, but then they're they're benchmarking and they're talking about best practices. And this is what I do to be productive at work and to basically unwind from like managing kids early in the morning, first thing before I get here, or this is how I manage stress or cope with day-to-day life or mm-hmm. manage the back and forth if I'm traveling, if I'm a mother that's traveling. So there are so many different ways that you can support like the employees in your organization. And it really just depends on what other groups you see that that are that are there. Like what are the demographics you see in your company? So at Dairy Gold, for example, like it wasn't you couldn't you wouldn't have like Ola. So Ola will be like a like a Hispanic or Latin American group. So that was one of the groups that we had in previous years. You wouldn't just have an Ola or an African American resource group. At Dairy Gold, it was in Seattle. So the organization was very diverse. So you've got Asian Pacific Islanders, you've got African Americans, you've got Latin Americans, you've got so many different people. You've got Canadians. We had a, a gentleman who was from the Netherlands who was a big part of the group. So you've got so many different people that we just called it people of color plus allies because you couldn't just nail down and pinpoint one specific group that you wanted to impact. You really wanted to make it a little bit broader so that it reached more people. So it just depends on who you've got in your organization. If you see that you've got a ton of women in the organization, it might not be a a bad idea to have have a women's group. Or if it's a really big company, you have a women of color group. So, I mean, it really just depends on what the company sees as a need. Yeah. On the topic of women, you were saying that when you were going here on your on your food service journey, that you, that, that you felt like there was a ceiling, uh, maybe a, a director role. What can companies in our industry do better to help women get into higher positions and not feel like there is a ceiling? I would say... What I saw was that there were people that were rallying for me and I had a voice in the room when I wasn't in the room. And I appreciate that. So I appreciate all of that support over the years. And I think that for other women in the industry, if you know that you've got an ally or you've got someone who has a voice for you in the industry and someone to like just tap you on the shoulder and say, I see value in you. And I think that you can do great things. It will give you that confidence to make you feel like you can do great things. And I'm sure you've heard the statistics before where they'll they'll say like a man will interview for a job when he he's only 75% of what is required. He only knows 75% of what is required. A woman will be nervous about interviewing for a job when she's got 125% of what is required because she because as a woman, sometimes we're not as confident. We haven't had people like tapping us on the shoulder to say, great job. I think that I can see you in the next leadership role because the the room, like the, the C-suite and the room of leaders doesn't always look like like a room full of women. So it, I mean, and you know that, like that, it's just a part of the industry. Food yeah. service is a very male dominated industry. So you really have to, 
put forth a lot of work and a lot of effort so that you could get into those rooms. So I would say the best. So your question was, how can the industry help? It's by tapping a woman on the shoulder, letting her know like, hey, you know what? We were talking about projects in our meeting earlier today and your name came up as a person who's doing great things. And while we recognize the fact that you're putting forth a lot of effort or you've put in a lot of hours or you gave us some content that no one else would have been able to develop. Like just making sure that that person has a voice even when they're not in the room. Because a lot of times we're not in those rooms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. For my company, it was, especially for the last year or two, I've really come to find when it came to the hiring process that when we put out a job posting that we would get one, mainly males. And so a lot of the similar type candidates would come in for these jobs and we wouldn't get a lot of uh, women into the interviews. And so with the help of like people like Julie Swift, changing around the way that we uh, hire and bringing in people from all different kinds of backgrounds, not just the same the same old that we've been that we had had. Mm-hmm. It has brought a more well roundedness to our company as well. Different b- viewpoints, different diverse backgrounds. It's been really healthy for our business, which is nice. You know, so I could definitely advocate for what you're saying. That's awesome. So that's great that you guys are getting more people. Uh, and it's great that you're partnering with Julie. Julie is a rock star. She's like food service yeah. maven. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, she is. Yeah, she is smart. She's she's cunning. She's uh, she you know, she big ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's been great to, to work with her. And she's definitely opened my eyes to a lot of different things. It's easy to get stuck in the channel that we are, you know, day to day. Got to go sell. I got to go move boxes. And and but it, I got to look at those types of things as well. And so it's been really great. You just said something that yeah. we've been saying for the last 20 years. You said you got to go and move boxes. We would always say you got to go and throw cases. Like that is yes. that is exactly what we're, that is what food service is. Like at That's the it. core of food service, you're throwing boxes, moving cases. So that, that sound, you're a person who's been in food service your entire career. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's it. In the most simplest form, we just move a box from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, when it comes to national account sales, so I don't personally have experience in working with some of the brands you've mentioned, like a Burger King or a Subway or a McDonald's. What does that sales process look like for those who are wanting to do business with those types of operators? Well, I would say, unfortunately, most of the time it takes a pre-existing relationship. Most of the time. When you think about a company like a McDonald's, like in my last role, McDonald's had been partnering with that company for 52 years. So when you're looking to like update contracts and the contract comes out and the contract is 28 years old, (laughs) <laughs> like that that is the last time that a contract has been signed 28 years ago you know that this is a long standing relationship it's only be a long standing relationship and i say that especially for the bigger food service chains only because they're looking for stability so looking for stability looking for transparency making sure that you've got partners that you can trust so a lot of times that trust comes with years of a relationship. So I would think I would say that that's probably like the biggest hurdle to overcome as a small company trying to get into a large chain is that it comes with a relationship or at least an introduction. So it has to be like if it's not a pre-existing relationship, it's an introduction from a valued partner, like someone to actually bring you in, support you, advocate for you. So they're introducing you as a valued partner and they're putting legitimacy behind your brand because it's really, really difficult for you to penetrate those walls. And then I would say next will be quality and not just quality of product. It will be like quality of service, the quality of communication that you bring the quality that they can see in your company truly is like your entire package. 
So is your product. It's the person who you've got representing you. It's how you're getting product to them. It's like timeliness. It's not having shorts. So it's like quality all the way around. So if you can show that you're like a valued partner and you're bringing them quality in every way, then the customer will start to trust you even more. But you've got to get in the door. So that's the only problem. Like you got to get in the door. And I would say I know that a lot of folks would think that it's just about price. It's not just about price. Most of your your biggest, most strategic partners, they understand like the food service industry is seeing price increases that are unprecedented. Like what? But I mean, you see it. You see it in the grocery store. So everyone knows it. Like, I mean, recently, I mean, I would say a year, year and a half ago was when the sticker shock started and bread would go from two dollars a loaf to like five dollars a loaf or you're saying chicken yes. in the grocery store that's like doubling in price like and if you're shop- depending upon the stores that you're shopping at like your grocery bill is 30 to 40 percent higher than what it was previously like the things that are now your sale prices and this is in food service and in retail your sale prices are were the regular list prices like five years ago or three years ago. So things have changed pretty dramatically. But the the bigger chains, they know, especially if they're looking for like valuable partners, they're not going to nickel and dime you. So maybe there's an annual RFP, might even be a two to five year RFP, but they're not going to nickel and dime you, especially if they know that you've been supportive. They know that you've got good feel rates. They know that you've got quality people supporting their business because they're going to want to know, they're going to make sure that they're going to get product to their door every week. So that's Mm -hmm. going to be much more important than the price point. So I would say definitely take the pricing piece out of the brain because a lot of people always say, you must be selling this like at rock bottom prices in order to get these big chains. And it's like, no, we just sell them really good quality product. We make sure that it's delivered on time and we give them great customer service. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that is prob that's probably one of the biggest things. Like just making sure that you are you you do what you say that you're gonna do. You don't overpromise and underdeliver. You just do what you say you're gonna do and hopefully you've got a pre-existing relationship or at least someone who can get you an introduction. Let's say you have a pre-existing relationship or you get the introduction. What is typically the how long is the sales cycle to get something actually onto a menu and ship nationwide or globally or wherever it goes? Oh my goodness. So do you want best case scenario or do you want real life scenario? Let's hear a real life scenario. Real life scenario, I'm going to say 12 to 18 months. 12 to 18 months is like real life scenario. So you can start talking with a chain. You can start talking with a chain in July of 2022 and you're, the business is just coming into fruition because you got to think about it. Typically, a big chain is going to already have a calendar set for the year. Mm-hmm. Your priorities are not their priorities. So you may want to come in and talk about beverage innovation, but beverage innovation isn't on the calendar for another two quarters. So you're going to keep courting this customer talking about beverage innovation, but it's not even on their radar at this point. So you really do have to figure out what that customer schedule is. So I would say normal is like 12 to 18 months, and that could even be considered quick. Uh, When I mentioned the Burger King like Fruit Loop Shake years ago, we started pitching that in 2014, and I believe it launched in 2017. And at that point, the entire team that pitched it was gone. So none of us were even at the company anymore by the time the the idea actually came into fruition. Think about like um, the the Doritos Locos Taco at Taco Bell. That was a three-year innovation process. So everybody talks about it. I mean, it was a huge success, like beautiful marriage of products, but it took three years Mm -hmm. to get there. So 12 to 18 months is what I would say is safe. Now, I know a lot of companies are trying to speed it up. Like you want something to start happening in like six months. That's very, very few and far between. Now, we have had a few partners who have come on board pretty quickly. Like we we have a six-month partner that's a national partner that we're super excited about. But that really was like that customer being ready. So they have to be like ready for what you are proposing. Like they were ready for beverage innovation. They were ready for our type of platform. So it was like all of the, every, all of the stars were aligned. So and sure. that with all the stars being aligned, like to get six months of launching it for everybody, it's like, oh my God, that was incredible. 
So I would just say have patience because it is a long sales cycle. Like it, it takes a lot. Like, I mean, I think about some of the innovation that I've seen at some of the top 100 chains that I've actually been a part of. I've seen innovation projects that go for five years, five wow. years before it's implemented. Where companies, <laughs> you've got R&D people, salespeople. So you've got to still have stuff in the background. So you can't just focus on those big chains because it could take that long. Uh, you still have to have some of the mid-tier chains because everyone's like targeting that top 100. You've got to have some of the mid-tier chains still in your back pocket that you can still work with and innovate with because the smaller chains, a lot of the cool kids may not have like, 3,000 locations, they may have 300, they might even have 50, mm -hmm. but they are, they love the fact that you're interested in them and that you're giving them attention. So they will be more willing to work with you and more willing to kick off a project in a faster amount of time. That totally makes sense. For our company, we work with a lot of those, the smaller to mid tier, you know, maybe mm -hmm. anywhere from like, I mean, anything from one unit all the way up to, I think probably the most we do is maybe maybe 300 units. Uh, usually those large okay. ones like McDonald's, Burger King, the manufacturer works with them directly in some capacity. Yeah, the smaller ones are more nimble. Yeah, especially if you can get them when they're, maybe they have 15 locations and they have some sort of financial backing to get to 80, uh, you know, get yes. in on the ground floor with some of these chains, which is always nice and grow with them. And, and then you can have that 28 year, old, 28 year contract with them mm -hmm. in the future. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you can grow with them. That is the, the that those are the best. So the ones that are growing and they're like the super hot, super cool kids, everyone loves them, but they just don't have a lot of locations today. I mean, think mm -hmm. about think about who a Chipotle was 20 years ago. Like I can remember being on my way to my first sales call. I was headed out to go see like George Pasquale in Peoria, Illinois, and I'm waiting for Chipotle to go public. At, and I think the original opening price was like $17.50. Uh, then they moved it to $19 and I'm calling E-Trade all day long uh, and I can never get in. By the end of the day, it was $41. I'm like, I can't afford $41 a share. By the next morning, it was $55. <laughs> I'm like, $55? I said, this is crazy. I can't afford this. And now it's over $2,000 a share. So look at these companies and how they've grown over wow. the years. I would have loved wow. to have been a part of that organization or at least been one of the vendors. I would have been, I would have loved to have sold you sour cream or queso back 20 years ago. Yeah. I, I, uh, we, Chipotle, their headquarters are here right down the street from where I live. And mm -hmm. I went into a, a Chipotle about a month or two ago to pick up dinner for my wife and I, and the CEO of Chipotle was in there with his, uh, looked like his son, and they were ordering a meal. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know who that is. And so I came home and told my wife, I was like, you'll never guess who I just saw. She goes, who? I was like, the CEO of Chipotle. He's a big deal. And I was, I was <laughs> such a fan. She's like, you're the only one who would know who that is just out in broad daylight. I'm like, I, I do. I, this is my industry. And, and uh, he's kind of like, uh, he's, he's a really cool guy. I mean, he's, he's doing some big things. Oh my God, that is that is awesome. Um, and so that yeah. means that your Chipotle is probably the best Chipotle in the country. <laughs> because yes. it's right down it, the street from the corporate headquarters. Totally. I, I ate there yesterday for lunch. I, I love it. I go there all the time. Karima, in your, for the future, what is something that you still want to accomplish that you haven't yet accomplished? So personally, one of the things that I've always wanted to do was to start my own nonprofit where I was able to talk to young people about building financial acumen. So me and my husband, my husband started an, an organization called the Walk Pro Program, where it's called Working at Lending Knowledge, where he helps young people uh, with technology, like learning technology, how to take a computer apart or how to take a TV apart. He's super technically savvy. Uh, we do a give back program where we give backpacks to the homeless every year. We are going to do a partnership with a women's book club so that we can take personal items and purses filled with personal items for women out to the community for whenever we see homeless women. But I've always wanted to do something for the kids because I didn't have anyone to teach me financial acumen growing up. And now I'm starting to see on LinkedIn and I see that like different schools are 
incorporating it into the curriculum. And this has been something that I've always thought about for like the last 15, 20 years. So at the end of my food service career, whenever that comes, that is what I want to do. So I want to teach financial acumen to young people in underserved communities so that they can understand how to budget money, how to write a check. Like young people, some young people don't know how to write a check today because they've never had to write a check. They've only ever swiped a card. But how to invest. So what are penny stocks? How do you trade on E-Trade? What is a 401k? Like some of the basic things. Uh, How to build your own business if you want to start your own small like network marketing business or if you want to write resumes or do book reports. Like just different ways to build financial acumen in young people. That's super important to me. So for the future, and I know it has nothing to do with food service, and this is about all about food service, but you asked me what I want to do for the future, and that's what it is. I want to teach young people to build financial acumen. Good for you. Good for you. We need more people like you out there. And you're right. Yeah, you, most When you go through school, there needs to be more education around financial acumen mm-hmm. and how to do just, as you mentioned, just the basics, you know, just learning yeah. the basics. And it's funny, or not funny, but a lot of people that go through life and maybe they get in their 50s and 60s, like, maybe now I should start investing. Now doing this, like, oh, if I would have learned it back in my, when I was 18 or my 20s. Well, Kareem, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me and being vulnerable and sharing your story. I know it's going to resonate with a lot of people. And I, I learned so much from our conversation. So just thank you for Again, taking time, it really means a lot. Well, thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you putting back into the food service community. Uh, You've got a ton of experience on your podcast. So you've heard from so many people. Like as I was just looking at your list, uh, I'm like, man, I said, Nick has talked to everyone in the industry (laughs) or you're on on your way to it. (laughs) Like you're on your way to talking to everybody in the industry. So I just thought that that was great. So thank you for putting back into the food service community. So you're definitely giving back. Thank you. Thank you so much.